Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, an evolved perspective on life with dogs. Well, it's all Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. <clears throat> Great to be here today, as always. Uh, I'm coming off of the Dog Film Festival, which was last weekend in Seattle. It's all over the country, happening, you know, not all last weekend, so the dates vary depending on where where in the country you are. Um, and uh, it, I, like, so this is like episode number 441, I think, <clears throat> which is pretty cool. <laughs> it's hard to believe. Um, you know, I've been on the air for a long time and um, met Tracy Hotchner last year through the Dog Film Festival was how we how we connected. And I had her on the show to talk about it. And we just um, had sort of one of those instant connections and our friends and um Talked to her again this year about it, and and uh, she's uh, she was the only one doing this type of thing when I was thinking about doing a show like this. I mean, I remember, I think it was over. Uh, it was like eight and a half years ago, and the world of podcast was a lot different eight and a half years ago. There, it's really kind of blown up. I think since then, there's there certainly were some, but not like today. And uh, she had been on the air for already several years, I think, when I was starting. And um, anyway, you know, 440 episodes and I've talked with so many amazing people. And and I, I have a lot of uh, ideas kind of come across my desk, so to speak. And, and I guess after so much exposure to dog-related everything... I am, oh, let's see, it, it doesn't feel like as positive as I want it to to say that I'm not easily impressed because I'm often impressed. But, um, you know, like I, I, all the guests that I have on here, I'm, you know, have them on because I'm interested in what they're doing. And I, I think you guys would be interested in, in what they're doing. And um, but, it, you know, it takes some filtering. So anyway, I just, you know, kind of appreciate that. Um, the Dog Film Festival this year blew me away. Blew me away. Last year's was good. Excellent. Can I jump in and say what was your favorite movie? I can't even. Okay. So I can because the, there's two that are like still in me. Mm -hmm. You know, one of them is a short, it's like seven minutes I posted it on our Facebook page. It's called Denali. I can feel like emotion that it's so powerful. Like I can still feel it as I even like talk about it. So that one is on our Facebook page. Uh, if you're not a fan of our Facebook page, check it out. Just search for the dog show with Julie Forbes on Facebook. And I posted that one. Oh, my God, it is a beautiful, beautiful story. You're going to cry, but it's okay. You know, it. but it's so powerful and moving and oh my God. 
Well, no spoilers, but can you give us an idea what that might be about? It's is it about, about uh, Alaska or the mountain? or The dog's name is Denali. Okay, all right. That I think sense. the guy, there's some association with Patagonia, the company. I think okay. maybe his owner worked for Patagonia or mm-hmm. had some connection. And it's just the, his own, I, I on like, I don't even want to talk about it because it's just not going to do it justice. Mm. Um, but it is about, the guy's relationship with his dog through the life of the dog till the end. The guy had can I like had cancer. It seven minutes. Watch it. All it's right. on our Facebook page, or you can if you're not on Facebook, just go to YouTube. Denali the the the, the film is titled Denali, but if you just type in like Denali Patagonia, you'll find it. And it starts out with like a um a car like driving onto a big beach. It's like a wide shot kind of from a distance, a car coming onto a beach part. And then it goes on. You won't regret it. Um, There were two films, two separate films, and they were both like a little over an hour. So Denali was close to the, to the front of the thing. There was one about a rock climbing Jack Russell terrier named biscuit, <laughs> like in crazy like not just like oh the dog's you know jumping on boulders the dog mm. is climbing up rocks that that was amazing jack russells are pretty small right small and yeah. tenacious yeah they're yeah. that's like the the eddie dog from fraser right yes okay except yeah. uh these ones are shorter had short well no my brother didn't there's now two different it used to all just be Jack Russell, and now there's a Parsons Russell, and, okay. they, and and one's short-legged and one's longer-legged. But still, pretty impressive for a little dog to be mountain climbing, huh? Yeah, well, they fit I, incredible. Biscuit, that one was really cool. Um, there was a longer one as part of the first film called Mystery of the Arctic Cairn. And Cairn, not as in the Arctic Cairn Terrier, but the cairn, which is where the cairn terrier was named after, which is a pile of rocks that were used to mark something. Right. You know? Um, so this is about four men who, using old diaries and maps of this ex- um, explorer from, like, 1901, uh, go and try to uh, retrace the path in the... Uh, Canadian Polar Arctic, and it's four men, four dogs that are like Malamute-type-ish dogs. They're Inuit dogs, actually. They're not Malamutes, but they're kind of uh, bigger boned than than a husky. Um, Canadian Inuit dogs is what they were. And that was a longer one. Very, very... That one is the other one in addition to uh, Denali that is just still still with me really really good mystery of the arctic cairn they have they're like have to get through polar bears and then arctic wolves and you see the how the dogs and and the men get you know way 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 so this one dogs are part of the crew yeah each each guy had a dog and they would not have been able to get you Mm. know pull their stuff pull their gear without the help pretty much all Antarctic, Arctic, and uh, Arctic <laughs> exploration yeah. has involved dogs. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that's inspired the interview that I'm going to play after this um, intro of my um, chat with Vaughn Martin, who um, did a like a commemorative run. Um, it was a 1925 serum run expedition getting uh, life saving was it diphtheria or something like that up to Nome, Alaska. And I talked with him about his sled dogs and, and, and his book, which is called A Long Way to Nome. Uh, I, I thought of him as I was um, kind of processing this movie as part of the Dog Film Festival, Mystery of the Arctic Cairn. Really good. And just I couldn't believe the, how much good content. There were some animated ones, that were interesting. Um, the rock climbing Jack Russell really kind of blew. I mean, the whole thing blew my mind. I cannot recommend it enough. I'm freaking out. I called Tracy halfway between and was like, this is amazing. And I wish you were here. But she's it's all over the country and she's got to, you know, take care of her own dogs, right? There was a, an ad at the beginning of each film. <clears throat> and it was like, do you suffer from, you know, blah, 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 like looks just like all of the pharmaceutical ads that mm -hmm. you see on television that are all over television, right? And, uh, you know, and da, 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 da. ask your veterinarian about dog, like as the name of the drug, right? And then they're like side effects and, da, 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 you know, talking a baby voice and da, da, da. It, that was really <laughs> cute. <clears throat> and then there's a, a different one at the beginning of the other one. Well, I think it's pretty well documented that dogs can help combat depression and yeah. social anxiety and all that stuff. So All sorts of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Good for the soul. Good for health. Good for the... I mean, they lower blood pressure, but it was really cute. It, it, they were well done because it really looked like... Are we about to watch like a pharmaceutical commercial <laughs> at the beginning of the Dog Film Festival? And it wasn't. It was part of it. Uh one about disabled dogs, uh, actually a couple about disabled dogs, um, one about a dog training program and prison, uh, both men, uh, men's and women's prison where they're training dogs, uh, like a search and rescue dogs and stuff like that, dogs that are going to go on to work if it's a good, um, kind of a good fit for them. Uh, just really, really great content. Somebody... <laughs> One in another one called Pup Culture. Uh, there was one woman talking about how she taught her dog a dance routine to Paula Abdul's Opposites Attract, which I was just, I almost fell off my chair actually because we have a Paula Abdul thing going on in my dance class. And last week I talked with uh, Liz, one of my friends from dance class, and now I've got a whole bunch of the other ones that have questions about their dog. So We'll do more dog training and behavior consults now, coming up. Now, if I recall, that featured the rapid stylings of MC Scat Cat. Right. So I'm not sure a dance routine with a dog is appropriate on that one. I know. <laughs> Maybe have to recruit a cat. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Dancing cats. Project Unconditional was on there, who I interviewed on the show, I think, back in 2015. And they uh, focus on honoring old dogs and... Uh, there was, I think it was within that one. Uh, oh no, it was in the one after that called if I could talk about, um, th you know, thanking dog, the dog, thanking the person. And, and it was, um, 
pro uh, or sort of supportive of that sometimes euthanizing a dog when they're ready to go is the kindest thing to do. And and I think that that's uh, uh, certainly a very complex, complex topic and every situation is so different. Um, but I do feel... I do have a sensitivity to when I hear um, in in the situations when this is the case. It's certainly not always the case, and, and dogs can certainly die a natural death and, and have that be all right and good. But I also think that there's times when, you know, we keep them alive longer than they would be if they were just on their own. And then kind of part of that responsibility is that when they are ready to, um, you know, end their suffering. Uh, it was moving. It was, I, it was just awesome. Well done, Tracy Hotchner. Thank you so much for putting that together. Go to dogfilmfestival.com and see where it is coming near you. And if you haven't missed it yet, or, you know, I'll find out where, if there's anywhere to, that where you can see it after the fact, like if it's online or whatever, um, I did post the Denali video that I referenced on our Facebook page, so check that out. Just go to the Dog Show with Julie Forbes on Facebook. Watch that. Uh, so good. So good. I am blown away by how blown away I am. Um, we got Lois's, to change the subject, we got Lois's DNA test results back from Embark Veterinary. Mm-hmm. I uh, had them on the show a couple months ago. Um, it was before she passed. It was probably maybe three months ago now. She recently passed away. Lois was our old dog haven, final refuge dog. We had her for three years. That all, so that was awesome. Embark Veterinary, if you're looking for a, a breed DNA test or a DNA and or a DNA test to check out um, your dog for like uh, health you know, that your dog is a carrier for the gene for this or that health condition. Those are really good things to know as well, um, you know, to have that information so that you can work with your veterinarian. veterinarian can I say that word? Veterinarian on preventative, uh, you know, anything that you could do maybe preventatively to know. Um, she was a super mutt, like lots of different. She was 25% Norwegian elkhound. Wow. Yeah. From both sides. A little bit of Elkhound from both sides makes a quarter Elkhound and Lois. Then she had German Shepherd was the next one. And then she had Doberman, Rottweiler, Husky, uh, Collie, and Pekingese. Quite a mix. Yeah. So cool. Embark Veterinary. It's through Cornell University. It is the most comprehensive test available as far as genetic testing goes. So check that out. Um, we're super happy with our, our whole process with that. And it's really great to know what made up, what made genetically made that girl so special. So I'm going to play my interview with Vaughn Martin about his book, A Long Way to Gnome. Enjoy. Hi, Vaughn. Hey there, Julie. Thanks Glad for... to be back on board. Sorry, I had a little technical problem actually with a landline there, so that's a bit of a switch. Oh, well, thanks so much for calling in, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about all of what you do and, you know, what the serum run is and your dogs and the training and everything. So 
So tell us first um, what it is that you do and what the Serum Run is. Thank you. Again, thank you for having me on your show. This is exciting. Sure. Um, I'm, a, I'm a dog musher based here in the great state of Washington. I live in southwest Washington in the foothills of the Cascades. And a lot of Washingtonians are surprised to learn that there's quite a few sled dog teams right here in our state. Mm-hmm. Um, I would estimate perhaps 50 or more. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a, uh, a organization of dog mushers. It's the Northwest Sled Dog Association. It's, it's been around for, uh, well, perhaps as many as 50 years or so. Mm-hmm. And um, most of the, uh, the dog running here is on, uh, is on forest roads. Uh, in the fall, it's it's on uh, dry land training with wheeled rigs or or quads, mm-hmm. and uh, actually in the winter we have uh, several races throughout the uh, the state of Washington. So it's not it's not a sport or an activity with dogs that that's isolated to Alaska only. Mm. When I was in um, Vermont, I went to college in Vermont, and while I was in college, I volunteered for a dog sled race. In Vermont, it was called the Craftsbury Dog Sled Race, and it was in Craftsbury, Vermont. And I just volunteered at at trail crossings where trails crossed over over roads and made sure that cars were stopped and stuff. But it was really, really cool to see to see the dogs doing what they do, and especially the start. I was really impressed by how fast they go at the beginning. That's what a lot of people have to say. I've given rights to a few people, and the two comments that I hear again and again is how fast these dogs accelerate. Mm-hmm. And the second comment is absolutely how quiet it is once you get out on the trail with them. Yeah. Um, unlike it's, it's sometimes portrayed in the movies, when the dogs are underway, they do not bark. They're very quiet, and all you hear is they're, they're panting uh, as they're moving down the trail and their little paws on the snow. Yeah. But uh, there is a lot of dog mushing there in New England. It goes back quite a ways. In fact, I think the oldest dog mushing club in the U.S. is actually in the greater New England area. Mm. So dog mushing is is a uh, dog sledding, and this was is was and still is, I imagine, actually a form of transportation, and still is used now in it some is, areas. It, yes, it, it is actually in Alaska. It's still used as a form of transportation in the backcountry. Mm-hmm. Um, at this time, there are still no roads across the uh, interior of Alaska. Mm. Uh, during the winter, the only way across that state is by airplane or dog team, or snow machine. Mm. Um, so it's, it's still an important part of the lifestyle there. It's uh, a very um, exciting recreational activity here in the lower 48 and here in, in, uh, in Washington. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's amazing to watch these dogs uh, do this. The teams here in Washington can number for as, as few as uh, two, three, or four, all the way up to 12 dog teams or more. And uh, these are dogs doing what they love the best, which is, is uh, running in harness and running as a pack. Mm. Now, Vaughn, you are the author of a book called A Long Way to Nome, the Serum Run 25 Expedition. So what is the Serum Run? The Serum Run is an expedition across the Alaskan interior by winter from Nanana to Nome. Now, really, that's a distance of about 800 miles. Mm. And the purpose of the expedition is to commemorate the original 1925 relay across the territory of Alaska to deliver life-saving uh, antitoxin to diphtheria-stricken Nome. And dog teams was the only way to deliver that. Mm. Um, so this expedition runs that same route mile for mile and commemorates those original 20 mushers and their incredible dogs who uh, saved the population of Nome from a terrible disease. 
So they were uh, isolated and uh, the whole community was, or many of the communities suffering from diphtheria. And the only way to get this up to them in the winter was with dog sled teams. Absolutely, yeah. There was still no air travel across the state at the time, and the and the ocean there across from Nome, which sits on the coast, is completely frozen in, so there's no way for ship travel to come in and out during the winter months. So who, where did these, the original mushers, were they Alaska natives, or did they come from, were they just like in the southern part of the state, or were they from the lower 48? Well, again, kind of going back to, to how Alaska stayed connected, particularly in the earlier part of, of the last century, and that was by dog teams running from village to village. So that's how they delivered mail, uh, kept the lines of communication open, um, you know, delivered supplies. So there was an established mail route, if you will, by dog team that crossed Alaska at that time, and it was decided the best way to deliver that original serum was to um, organize a series of relays across the territory of Alaska, mm. um, to carry this, this serum. So each of the mushers was running from his village to the next village. So Got it. And that, and that would have been a distance of, you know, 30 to 50 miles approximately. Okay. And so Balto was the dog of, for, of the last leg then of that relay. Right. So Balto, who we've heard about from animated features, and it's, it's a name that's familiar to most children, was the lead dog on the very last leg that brought that serum into Nome in 1925. Mm. Yeah, and I think I saw a um, documentary about this oh, sometime in the, I don't know, past few years, I guess. I don't remember when, but I know that this is familiar, and I remember seeing footage on television about this this run, actually, specifically. And so you're actually going to be, so now you do a, a, a run, a, like a commemorative run? Right. So this is a commemorative run. So we're going to, we're going to uh, again, honor those original mushers and their dogs. But there's a second very interesting component to this expedition, and that's the fact that, that our expedition also has a medical team with us. Mm-hmm. And at each of those villages that we arrive at uh, between the Nana and Noma, there's approximately a dozen of them, mm-hmm. um, our medical team will deliver a health education program to the villagers. And what your listeners got to keep in mind is this is a very remote part of Alaska. They don't see anybody from the outside through the winter months. The only way in and out by ground is by snow machine or dog team. So um, this is a big event for them when we come through with our, our little education program. In 2009, we gave a program on stroke prevention. Mm. And what will you be talking about this year? Um, that's still being discussed among the expedition team, but one of the uh, topics that is up for consideration is the 20-minute CPR program. So we try to bring them something that would be of value uh, to these smaller villages that, mm-hmm. that don't have immediate contact to uh, medical facilities easily. Yeah. And how many teams are participating in this run? It's quite an expedition. It's going to include 15 mushers, mm-hmm. about 180 sled dogs, and it also includes 18 snow machiners, or driving snowmobiles, as we mm. call them here in the lower 48. And the purpose for the snow machines is to help haul the supplies, mm. because we uh, there's drops for the dog teams about every three days of travel along the trail, and it's about a 20-day trip. Mm-hmm. But uh, to get between those three-day uh, cash, you know, if you will, the snow machines are assisting by hauling supplies in addition to what the musher is hauling on their sled. And those machines are hauling about 800 pounds each. Wow. 
Yeah, so it's quite an expedition, and we're basically moving from village to village together, basically traveling at our own speed. But these are distances of about 30 to 60 miles a day, mm-hmm. and a run that could take a dog team. Uh, when I ran it in 2009, there were some runs that were up to 10 and 11 hours a day. Wow. So what's the difference between this expedition and the Iditarod? Very good question. A lot of folks are confused between the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race and the Serum Run Expedition. The Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race is, uh, was created to likewise commemorate the 1925 run, but it begins in Anchorage, Alaska, and it's a race for time and prizes and ends up in Nome. So it's a very competitive event. Um, trying to move those dogs down the trail as quickly as they can. Mm-hmm. By contrast, the Ceremon Expedition is not competitive. It is not a race. It's to, again, commemorate those original mushers and to bring health education uh, to the villagers across Alaska. So it is not a race. Mm. So since it's not a race, then is there less risk then, especially I would imagine, than the burden on the dogs and the mushers and everyone participating is not as intense? Because you're not um, under this time time crunch. Yeah, yeah, yes and yes and no. Because you know you're, you're still traveling most of that Iditarod Trail. You're still traveling in weather that can be 40, 50 below, and you're still going to face every hazard you know that any dog team will face. You know, traveling across that state, and it is a hazardous uh, trip. Um, but uh, the uh, the difference in the way the dogs travel in the Iditarod race, those dogs are going to run about four hours, rest about four hours, run four hours, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. On the Sierra Run. They're going to run through the day, but we don't have to really put them into race mode. I can kind of put them more in, in cruise mode. Uh, I can stop and snack them along the way as often as I want. And then when they get to the village at night, they've got a full 12 hours to lay over and get a nice night's sleep on a soft bed of straw and get plenty to eat. Mm-hmm. So what do you feed them? Wow. You, these dogs are fed uh, real high-octane dog food, and... Uh, I would say it's probably in the neighborhood of a 35% protein, 25%, 27% fat. Mm-hmm. And in addition to keep them fueled up, we're feeding them fat or suet or, or ground meat, um, lamb chunks, that sort of thing. Because mm-hmm. these dogs are going to burn five to 10,000 calories a day. Wow. And in order to get that much fuel in them, that not only gives them the energy to run down this trail, but to keep them warm in that cold temperature, they eat voraciously. So it's oh, a very yeah. high-octane dog food. Mm-hmm. So now what about you? Because you don't have that thick double coat that the Huskies have. <laughs> so I'm sure you've got, you know, some some great gear. But that you mentioned 40 below. I mean, the it's I can... Um, I guess appreciate or admire your drive to put yourself in that situation, which you know is really such a challenge and very uncomfortable. Well, it is it is uncomfortable and it's very challenging. And I've been often asked, "How do you dress for weather that gets down to sixty below zero or so?" And you're really layered up. It's you know how how high tech clothing is now. But you do layer up properly. There's uh, specific types of footwear and handwear, et cetera, that you wear. And the other thing that's very important is to stay very well hydrated because the uh, Alaska is in the Arctic area. It's very easy to become dehydrated because the air is very, very dry there. Mm. So you're drinking as often as you can and, and eating um, you know, large breakfasts, large dinners. But during the day, you're traveling on those runners, and so you're kind of eating what you can. You know, I like uh, 
pieces of snack meat and granola bars, and you're just eating as many high-calorie foods as you can throughout the day. Yeah. A lot a lot of that is because your body is burning so much energy just to keep warm. Just to keep warm, exactly. So yeah. um, I think just about all of us lose weight on this trip. Yeah. So... Um, now, I, I want to, in the next segment, uh, I have some questions about the training involved. And I know that you are unique in that you use all dogs that you've adopted or gotten from a shelter, which is great. And are you, are they all huskies or husky mixes? Or I know a lot of times sled dogs look, they don't look like your, you know, University of Washington mascot, which actually is a Malamute, but um that they tend to be a little thinner and um, more scraggly looking. So are your dogs all purebred huskies or are they mixes? I've, I've got a mixture. I've got a handful of Siberian huskies that look more like what um, the average person expects a husky to look like. Yeah. The rest of them are our Alaskan huskies, which is the Iditarod type dog. And they are a leaner, smaller dog. They typically weigh 43 to 60 pounds, mm-hmm. not as heavy coated, but they're probably certainly the most, uh, proven athlete in the world. This is a dog that can run 80 miles a day wow. um, and haul heavy loads. So they're just an amazing dog. And of color, they're every color imaginable, white, black, red, um, different types of coat configurations. Uh, as far as color, they could be blue-eyed or brown-eyed or like some of mine, the combination of both. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people are, are struck by how um, slight the Alaskan Husky is when they see one for the first time. Yeah. That was my impression, and, and uh, what I've heard other people say, too, is um, that they're so little. <laughs> but they're they're wiry, and they have stamina that um, just won't quit. So, and, But they you said that they're not as thick-coated, so they're still able to keep warm in that, that frigid, frigid weather? Yeah, I, they, they do pretty well in Alaska, um, where the, the breeding is, is out of, of course. And um, But they still do have a pretty good coat, not like a Malamute would, for example. Mm-hmm. But they're pretty comfortable um, down to 10 and 20 below. In fact, about 20 below is an ideal operating temperature for those dogs. Hmm. But I will tell the listeners that when we get into areas where there's really high winds, particularly out on the coast, um, there's a dog coat for every one of these dogs that's on the sled. It's fleece-lined. It has a, a windshell on the outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, that really keeps that wind off of them. I let some of the dogs wear those at night if it's cold enough. And, of course, they're curled up on, on thick beds of straw, which is really well insulated. But they sleep very comfortably, mm-hmm. and every dog wears a booty on every foot every mile of that run, which mm-hmm. is not to protect them from cold because their feet don't get cold but to protect them from abrasions. So mm. there's a lot of dog care along the way. Yeah. Abrasions and then also like um, ice can build up in between the paw pads and stuff. And that can certainly, I mean, that can cause abrasions, but just be really uncomfortable and frostbite, I think, too. Yeah. Yeah. The abrasion is the main factor. So yeah. you're really watching those feet carefully and changing those booties as necessary. I, I use about 1,500 of those on the trip. 1,500 booties? That's correct. Wow. <laughs> So I have some, I'm very curious about the, um, we've been talking about the serum run and it's a commemorative run and, um, and I'm really curious about your dogs. And I know you wrote in your book, A Long Way to Gnome, about your experience in the 2009 run. Is that right? Was it the 09 run? Yeah, it's the 2009 run that's, that's chronicled in the book. Okay. And, um... So you have, you said, uh, 17 dogs, and your dog team is made up of 12 dogs that you'll actually run with. Right. The best 12 make the team. 
Okay. And you use all dogs that you've adopted from either another musher or you've even gotten dogs from shelters. Yes, I do. And as, as some of your listeners may know, there's with the overcrowded, you know, adoption agencies and so many dogs that, that are put down because there just aren't enough homes mm-hmm. that uh, I, I have chose, made the personal choice not to breed any of my dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have, you know, literally adopted um, all the dogs that I use on my team. Um, almost 10,000 huskies across the country, I heard, are, are, are euthanized each year. There's just not enough homes for them. Yeah. So, uh, you know, adopting these dogs, finding a dog that needs a home um, is, is a great way to kind of keep them active and enjoying the lifestyle they love so much. Uh, several of them came out of um, other mushers that were ready to retire them from their teams and uh, take great care of their dogs. So they select people like myself to uh, give them that extended career. And that's how I came to get my dogs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know I have cattle dogs, and I've talked about them a lot, and they are a high-energy High maintenance <laughs> um, breed, uh, another working type breed, herding this time. But so many dogs end up in shelters because the people who get them either don't know what is going to be required to meet their needs. And so a lot of dogs that are pent up end up having behavioral issues or they get destructive. Um, I, I would imagine there's a fair amount of huskies that end up in shelters because they've taken off because I know that they have a tendency to roam. Oh, yes, they do. Yeah. And so what a great thing to not only, you know, adopt dogs that need homes, but you're not only, I mean, you're taking these dogs that probably ended up in a shelter a lot of times because their previous owners were not able to meet their needs. And now you're taking them and giving them like the dream life for a husky. Yeah. Remember Teak, one of my uh, Siberian Huskies, up on the uh, on the kennel door, it said he was chewing carpet and underwear, and he was only six months old. And, you know, basically he was just being a puppy, and folks were prepared for, you know, that type of dog, I guess, when they got him. And these dogs are runners. They're escape artists. So mm-hmm. they do require good confinement. Yeah, and they're very smart. I live oh, yes. Yeah, in Vermont, a roommate of mine had a Husky, and um, he was... Um, freaky smart like people like he you could i don't know he would do things like take everybody's pillows off of their beds and bring them to his mom's bed and then get on it and sleep (laughs) are you a dog (laughs) so um now what all is involved now i know that you're taking a very natural drive so was that drive the drive to pull simply yeah, yeah. These, these dogs are responding to the natural instincts to pull. So, okay. you know, teaching, that is not something that you have to teach a husky to do. You put a harness on them, hook them up, they're going to want to pull. But you do have to cultivate their stamina and, you know, their physical strength, just like any athlete would want to be trained. Yeah. And it's also not just, okay, go. I mean, you have to be able to communicate and control them to an extent as well, because you're not just going straight 800 miles. And then there's parts of, you know, you have to be able to navigate the trails and stuff. So what all is involved? I mean, what do you have to teach them? I remember when I was in at volunteering at the dog sled race in Vermont that they were saying the words gee and haw for right and left or left and right. Right. Just like a football team, the dogs on a dog team are specific to their positions for the most part. There are some that can, you know, switch up and change positions and multitask that way. Mm. But dogs whose responsibility is to follow your voice commands, uh, G to turn right, um, how to turn left, 
um, you know, there's well and, and get up or whatever, you know, get up and go commands you give them. And, um, you know, kind of working your way back to the team, you, you've got, uh, you know, the wheel dogs that are at the very back. They're your strongest, heaviest bone dogs that are, you know, helping the sled negotiate around obstacles and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, but those lead dogs are dogs that really like to be out in front. And a lot of dogs don't like the mental pressure of being out in front of a large team. Yeah. So those leaders, you know, they are, they are your dog's, that um, probably have a real special connection with you because they want to be out front. They're picking out the best section of that trail. They may not be the hardest working, but, you know, they're the brains of the group up there, and there's a lot of responsibility on them. And um, very few dogs really ascend to that position. It's like your star athlete on your team. You know, there's just those few that emerge from right. the rest of the team. Yeah, like the captain, the team captain. Yes, Or indeed. co-captain, I guess, including you. <laughs> So I was going to ask you too about the um, the order of the dogs. So I, you know, I think everybody knows there's the lead dog, and that's the dog like Balto gets all the fame. But and then you said there's the the dogs in the back wheel. What'd you call them? Yeah, they're the wheel dogs. Okay, um, mm-hmm. and, and they're just ahead of your sled. And then throughout the team, you've got you know the rest of the team. The dogs right behind the leaders are often referred to as the swing dogs. They're to kind of help negotiate. Uh, you know, where the dogs are going to track at the front of the team. But uh, you you get about 12 to 14 dogs lined out in front of you, and that's a good long line of, of, uh, of cable lines and dogs in front of you. And when you get into some tight turns in the mountains, uh, such as our Washington Cascades, you, uh, you do lose sight of the leaders up front because they're kind of, you know, around that turn ahead of you. So that can make it real interesting. It's a long line of dogs. So how do they know where to go? Because if you can't see them, you're not the one steering, correct? That's that's correct. You know, um, the dogs will follow what they perceive as the trail, and they're, it's they're really their feet that pick it out, and also their their uh, ability to smell the trail. Yeah. Um, for example, when you're traveling across Alaska, and if you don't have another dog team in sight in front of you, the team that passed over that trail leaves the scent trail just by simply passing over it, and it'll last a very long, long, long time, days or weeks maybe. Yeah. And the teams falling behind can really pick that scent trail up to kind of follow along. If you come to an intersection, you want to make sure you call up, you know, which direction you want them to go. One of them might look back just to see, you know, which direction you're going to call them up to. Mm. But um, they'll negotiate that trail by their scent. Interesting. And so I have a... when. When I was living in Vermont still, I was on a hike with a friend, and we climbed up uh, Camel's Hump Mountain, which is not a very big mountain. It is for New England standards, but so we were on our way down, and it was starting to get dark, and we were with my dog, Chewy, at the time. He's since passed away, but and it was getting to be to where we really couldn't see the trail very well. We were closer to the bottom, but there were a lot of—it was in the fall, and a lot of leaves had fallen, and so it was kind of hard to— Hard to really see the you know the distinction of the trail versus just the sides of the trail, but we could see Chewy, and he had been on many hikes before. So we just decided to follow him, and he brought us right back down to the parking lot. <laughs> but we thought that was pretty cool that we could they just. Have an, they have an amazing ability to do that, and what a coincidence! In fact, my principal lead dog on the 2009 run, and my principal lead dog who's taken us back in 2011 is a dog named Chewy. Aww. He is a lookalike of Balto, actually. He's mostly black with a white bib. And the remarkable thing about this dog is he turned 12 last March, and he is still running lead for me. Um, wow. He's an incredible dog. He's a dog that I adopted from another mushroom many years ago. And 
for those who are interested in learning more about these dogs, if they visit my website, it's called thewildhuskies.com, um, they have the opportunity to sponsor one of these dogs on the 2011 Serum Run. We are volunteers on this run, and it's kind of it's out of the pocket, so it's on us to get ourselves up there and bring this health education across Alaska. But if anyone would like to know more about these dogs or sponsor one of their favorite dogs to help take this message across Alaska for the villagers, this at the site. It's a lot of fun. Mm. And that is com. Correct. And I have that. Uh, there's a link posted on the Dog Talk Show homepage as well. And there's also links um, on Facebook and Twitter. And you have a Facebook page and also a Twitter account, correct? Yes, I do. And yes, what I is do. the name of your Facebook page? Um, well, they could just do it by my name, Vaughn Martin. Okay. V- V-O-N, V-O-N, right. M-A-R-T-I-N. All right. And uh, so you, your, your spectacular lead dog's name is Chewy? He is, yes. He's a great dog. Yeah. Well, I'm not surprised because it's, it's a very, very distinguished name. Any dog with that name must be pretty special because my dog I was. Agree. Yeah. Well, and so um, you can sponsor one of your sled dogs, and that helps support the run. Um, again, that's com. Now, your book, A Long Way to Gnome, um, uh, sort of documents your run of 2009. And it sounds like it was eventful. It, it, that, you know, that, that, that uh, expedition was uh, a situation where everything that could go wrong pretty much did. Mm. Um, in the end, the dogs all got out just fine. But um, it was a very exciting expedition with a lot of unexpected twists and turns. And I had originally intended a book as a thank you gift to my sponsors, but there were so many oddities and extraordinary things that happened to us and the dogs up there that I published it in a book. Um, It's a great read. It's only about 130 pages. It has 150-plus color photos of the expedition. Wow. And it's really a book about the relationship between the musher and the dogs set against the background of Alaska. So it really kind of goes to the heart of what's going on between the musher and the dogs on this trip. Yeah. So so I was going to ask, too, what... Now, you said Chewy is 12 and still running strong, but what is the average retirement age for a sled dog? You know, Julie, it's pretty close to 12. I've seen mm-hmm. some dogs retire out after about 11. Usually by 13, they're pretty well ready for full retirement. Um, my oldest a male leader who's been retired for some time is 15 and a half and still kicking around, but he quit working in 13, at age 13. So yeah. about 12 is about as long as you would probably expect them to, uh, to remain in service. But basically, they let you know by their performance and their desire. Yeah. And how old uh, do they have to be in order to start? Um, a yearling, um, mm-hmm. more than six months. But I would say a year and year and a half old dog is about ready to, to uh, really get to harness and get to hard work. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a break, Vaughn, and we'll be back in just a few minutes to talk more with you about you and your dogs and your experiences. We'll be back in just a few minutes with the Dog Talk Show on Alternative Talk 1150. Northern lights cross snow and the ice that's called the Iditarod Trail. We'll give me a team and a good lead dog and a sled that's built so fine. And let me race those miles to Nome 1049. Then when I get back to my home, hey, I can tell my tale. I did, I did, I did the Iditarod Trail. Looking for an easy way to give your dog's food a boost in nutrition? 
Or maybe your dog has a sensitive digestive tract, itchy skin, or is just a picky eater. We've had such great success feeding St. John Creamery raw goat's milk to our pack and I recommend it to my clients all the time. You can get raw goat's milk for your dog all over the country, but if you live in Western Washington, be sure it's St. John Creamery you reach for in the freezer section of your local independent pet supply store. You can also pick up your milk at drop locations around the area. Visit stjohncreamery.com to learn more. That's stjohncreamery.com. Your dogs will love you for it. Eric, people ask me to help them with all sorts of doggy challenges. I can only imagine. Oh yeah, dogs jumping on guests, new puppy questions, behavioral challenges like fear and aggression, even dog food sensitivities. You name it and I've probably worked with it. But can you help people even if they don't live in Seattle? Absolutely. I've had great success with phone consultations and have even Skyped with people and their dogs from all over the country. Every dog should be approached as a unique individual. I've talked about this over and over again on the show. That's one of the parts of working with dog training and behavior that I love the most. Every client is different. If you're listening and you need help with your dog, just get in touch. I'd love to get you pointed in the right direction and answer all of your questions. Email me, host at dogradioshow.com. That's me, Julie Forbes, host at dogradioshow.com. I look forward to connecting. Wait, dogs can use Skype? We're really living in the future. <laughs> this is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to the Northwest School of Animal Massage on Vashon Island, we cover the world of animals. This week, August 13th, it's Best Sunday with Dr. Nels Rasmussen in the studio. Dr. Nels can help with behavior, emotional, or physical problems with you or your animal friends. He can also check on food, supplement, or food compatibility or dosages. We'll have open phone lines throughout the show, so plan to call in for your free remote on Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Going our own way every day. Alternative Talk 1150. And now back to the dog show with Julie Forbes. Then when I get back to my home, hey, I can tell my tale. I did, I did, I did, I did a right trail. Welcome back to the dog show with Julie Forbes. So we are back with Vaughn Martin, author of A Long Way to Gnome. Welcome back, Vaughn. Good to be here. Now, you had an experience um, regarding flying your sled dogs in small planes. Yeah, I'll, I'll just share this very quickly. Um, when we got to Alaska, we we experienced the worst winter they'd had in 30 years. Mm. And it was so bad that we got bogged down on the river about halfway across Alaska and uh, actually was forced to abandon our hopes of getting to Nome. Mm. And uh, one of the ways we had to move dogs was little tiny single-engine airplanes, uh, trying to move them, you know, further down the trail. And at one point, um, we were flying 24 Huskies on a little single-engine Cessna, along with two dog sleds at a two mushers and the pilot, uh, departing in a terrible storm um, just to keep the dogs kind of moving down the trail and get to where we could eventually bring them back to Anchorage. But let me tell you, imagine uh, an area the size of a dining room table for 12 and having 25 huge sled dogs and all that gear packed into it and leaving on a small single-engine plane in a storm where you can hardly see what you're doing. Um, it looked like a scene from the movie Eight Below. It was exciting. Wow. Now, I can't even imagine fitting that. I mean, they're all just loose. You're all just sort of piled in there? 
Well, they were piled in there. We had them attached to a, a little line that went around, you know, the floor of this little airplane. But these dogs were literally on top of each other, and many of them didn't know one another. We couldn't really be sure what would happen, but there were absolutely no altercations because it was a little frightful for the dogs, so they kind of really settled down and really, you know, took the trip without, you know, without any trouble. Yeah, but, I, um, it seems like they know, too, like, okay, we're doing some survival things right now, so it's not a time to act out. <laughs> they definitely it was not a time to act out. They could yep. save that for later. Right. Well, um yeah, that just sounds now was that in the that wasn't in the O nine expedition, was it? That was in the O nine expedition, yeah. And um it was just one of many um twists and turns that we experienced on that expedition. And if your readers would like to know more about what happened, if they'll um uh they can get the book at Amazon dot com. It's a long way to know. It's beautifully illustrated, but there are many of these stories about what the mushers and our dogs experienced together on the long length of that trail up in Alaska. Mm. So uh, available for purchase at Amazon, and there's these links on your website, which is callofthewildhuskies.com. And you can also request an autographed copy, which would make a very nice gift. Yes, and, uh, I, have, I have autographed copies available, and if they were to go to uh, callofthewildhuskies.com, right on the home page, there's a link that they can click and uh, and purchase a uh, an autographed copy that we'll mail out. And you said that uh, in addition to the story, there's also 150 color photos in there as well. Yes, there are, and there are numerous photos of the inside of that airplane when the dogs are flying up there oh, in that wow. storm. And just the look on those dogs' faces alone is worth the price of this book. Oh, so it's really a lot of fun. Yeah. Like, what is going on right now? <laughs> well, being on a plane alone, I mean, have they have they even been on a plane before? Yeah, I'm sure, Julie, that most of these dogs had never been in an airplane before. So it was yeah. uh, it was a little fearful for them. Let alone crammed in there with a bunch of dogs. But And so this was to get up or to get back? Well, this was to try to move further down the trail. We, we Very quickly, we had a situation where there were uh, some terrible blizzards that were dumping six or eight feet of snow on the Yukon River where we were trying to navigate down. It was decided that we could move the dogs further down the trail and let the snow machines come up behind us, you know, moving quicker, that we could all meet up in the town of Galena and continue on our way. But as things turned out, that snow was so bad that the snow machines could not make their way down that trail, and um, our dog teams ended up 175 miles ahead of our support team. Mm. And since they carried the gear and the supplies, there we were separated from them, and there was no choice but to, um, after several days of delay in the storms, to bring in an old cargo plane and uh, ship those dogs out on an old DC-6. Wow. Bring them back home to Anchorage. So so the dogs were able to get to where the snow snow machines were not able to? That is exactly right. We were able to kind of keep them moving down, but those snow machines hauling that 800 pounds of weight could not move through the extraordinarily deep snow that Alaska experienced that year. Wow. So how do the dogs move through the snow if it's so deep? Well, they're, you know, they're traveling lighter over the top of it. Um, you know, that snow, even if it's powdery, you know, it packs down a bit, but the dogs can move over a trail that's slightly packed, whereas a snow machine um, with a wide track hauling all that weight, it just kind of bogs down in the snow and can't make forward mm, progress. Yeah, yeah. And how much does the sled weigh? Um, the sled that I'm driving, I would say empty, maybe 80 pounds or so, but mm. by the time I've got it loaded with gear, those dogs are pulling about 300-plus pounds. 
Mm. You know, which translates to maybe 40 pounds per dog. So let me tell you, they don't even know you're back there. Yeah. They don't even know you're back there. And they'll pull that weight, as I said, for 10, 11 hours, just about nonstop. We'll take one or two five-minute snack breaks, but they are able to keep moving for that long. It's amazing. And it can give you an appreciation how if you get one of these dogs as a pet, taking them for a 20-minute walk or probably even an hour walk, really isn't going to do much as far as satisfying that energy. They're just getting warmed up after an hour. Yeah. And I know in this in this area, um, especially in Seattle, you know, Huskies, of course, are very popular, unless you're a Cougars fan. <laughs> and uh, so a lot of people get Huskies because of their beloved mascot and probably don't realize what they're in for as far as uh, energy need and intelligence because they are very high up in both categories. Yeah, my best advice for people that are interested in Huskies is do a lot of reading about them and then visit a shelter or go online Mm -hmm. um, because there's so many wonderful dogs available for adoption. And I would tell the listeners that these dogs that I took out of the county shelter, for example, that ran with the Sierra Run team, they are also great in the house. They're bed buddies and couch buddies. They're a great dog, but they are a high-energy dog. Yeah, and I'm sure your dogs are so well-behaved in the house because they are getting their needs met energetically and they're working and they have a constructive outlet for all that energy. Absolutely. I don't have problems in the house with them. Yeah. Well, uh, so nice to talk to you today, Vaughn. I'm so glad you got in touch with me, and um, I look forward to your book, A Long Way to Nome, and that's N-O-M-E, Nome, Alaska, uh, chronicles your 2009 serum run. And uh, Vaughn's website is callofthewildhuskies.com. You can order the book from Amazon. You can also request an autographed copy. You can do that through the website. He has a uh, his um, training blog for the upcoming run, which will be February 19th to about March 10th, will be the actual run. There's a f- five-and-a-half-minute video and all sorts of information, so... Check out Vaughn's website, and uh, Vaughn, my my warmest regards to you and your team as you continue training and, and uh, wishes for a very safe trip, and uh, give, give Chewy a pat for me. I will give Chewy a hug for you, and thank you so much for having me on the show and talking to your listeners about these amazing dogs. My pleasure. That was Vaughn Martin, author of a book called A Long Way to Gnome. Check that out. You can get it on Amazon and elsewhere. Uh, so a reminder that I posted that one of the films that really, really deeply touched me called Denali on our Facebook page, check it out, go to the dog show with Julie Forbes on Facebook, become a fan and you can become a part of our conversation in between our live shows every Wednesday at two. And, uh, just a, a big thank you to Embark Veterinary again for their brilliant genetic testing You can go back and look uh, just a few months ago at my interview with one of their veterinary geneticists. Really interesting. Um, They they could tell the breeds of Lois's parents, the breeds of Lois's grandparents, her genetic age. They confirmed her age. Like all this stuff. It's really, really incredible. Um, Embark Veterinary. We had a breed DNA test done for Chewy, who's passed away um, close to nine years ago. And... um, it's a whole different ballgame now with the technology they have with genetic testing. So that's Embark Veterinary. If you have a question about your dog's training or behavior, sometimes I like to have people on and just kind of do a consult on air and answer all your questions about your dog 
So if you do, get in touch, host at dogradioshow.com, and I might invite you on air to talk about your dog, and I can give you some advice and tips, get you going in the right direction. Thanks for listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. been listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, Wednesday afternoons at 2 on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. Never miss another episode. Listen to our podcast online at dogradioshow.com or download them for free on iTunes or SoundCloud.